0: Hi everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and the Love Is Podcast. I'm excited to welcome the host of the Love Is Podcast, Kim Sorrell. Kim, how are you? I know you're excited about our guest. I'm
1: Craig Neil. I hope you are too, and yes, I am very excited about Ellen Travolta, who did act in a couple of shows. Welcome back, Cotter, Maurice, with her brother John, who we all know, but we all know Ellen, because Ellen has done so much. She lives in one of my favorite cities, the most beautiful city i think in the entire country portland idaho and uh as acted there and is still acting and is still going strong in a, in this show that i love going home and ellen i am so thrilled that you are here i want to start off by saying that i'm so sorry that uh about jack what a great guy a wonderful actor yes i so sorry yes. about that
2: yeah he yeah. was yeah. absolutely fabulous and he is very missed so thank you
1: yeah i'm sure i'm sure that's true ellen i am so thrilled that you're here i am a fan of yours i am a big fan of hallmark movies and i i'm a big fan of your hallmark movie so (laughs) welcome to the show
2: thank you thank you
1: yeah so i'm excited to hear about going home season
2: two well, you know, the odd thing is that I live in Coeur d'Alene and where they film is outside of Spokane, which is a stone stone story. So when Rich called or my agent called and said Rich Cowan, he called him, I jumped aboard because at this point in my love of I'm of my life, I'm so interested in doing really whatever comes my way as long as I like it. I don't just do anything. I love the hallmarks and I love the whole concept of going home. I think in general, we, we stay away from conversations about death because people are afraid. And it's really the unknown that they're afraid of because no one's come back to say exactly. But then faith brings another road to believing in what you've been taught, what you've read, what you've learned and what, how, what you feel the truth is. But I think it's important because people are becoming more aware of it because of going home.
0: Oh, 100%. And I think it's something that is, is difficult for people to have those conversations. And it's good. The show really talks about it so that those conversations after watching the show can go on between family members, can go on between other people, water cooler conversations, things like that.
2: Yes. And I think there's one other thing. It's very important. And as in life, in death, there is humor. You laugh. You, you, you don't, it's not, oh, somber, somber. There's a lightness. There's a remember this and there's a, oh I'm going and I hope I see or I do. And I think that if you have a conversations with young people about all, all, all the things that could await you, it, it is much less scary.
1: I love that you said that, you know, I don't think I've ever heard anybody uh, put it like that before, but it's so true because it's, it's all emotions that happen and you have to be able to laugh at the things that you can laugh at because it is pretty serious stuff, you know, and, and it can be hard. And I think that's one of the things that going home does such a great job of is really showing the whole range of emotions, you know, not, it's not just all about sadness. It's about the families and what the families are going through and, and, and about laughter. I mean, there, there needs to be that. So I love that you said that. And laughter has been part of things that you have done, things that you have been in in happy days as Bonzi's um, aunt and uh, Joni and Chach, Chach, Cha
2: right? <laughs> Joni loves Chachi. I don't know why I
1: couldn't spit that word out because I watched the show, but um, humor is something you do.
2: Yes. Yes, it is. And you know, even in The Going Home, Ida, the character I played, had a had a feisty side to her. And she didn't want her grandson to be alone. So in on her deathbed, she was trying to hook the nurse up with her grandson so that she would not be leaving him alone. And it was wonderful. Cozy, um, uh, that played the nurse, and the lo- two lovely actors. And they were so wonderful. So we had we had some humor going, um, and and some hope, and uh, a reason to feel that everything was taken care of when you know when in in death that everything was was okay. It, she she gave herself permission to go.
0: Now tell us about your character, Alan.
2: Uh, I don't well. I, I think she's sort of a feisty lady who raised her grandson and who loves him and I got from the script that they'd always just been together and she knew she was dying and the only thing she was afraid of, what what kept her from going was the fact that her grandson didn't have a partner. So when she tries to get the nurse and her grandson together and it's working and then you watch that she peacefully begins to leave and she leaves, Mm. he has a problem with it and then the nurse in hospice helps him.
1: Mm. That's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. You know, when you see that happen with people when they're hanging on until a family member gets into town or they're hanging on until some event, something happens. And, and I love that it's demonstrated that way that this grandma had so much love for her grandson that she wanted to make sure that he was okay, before she let go. and. You, you do it so beautifully. I just have to say, Ellen, uh, you're you're so good at what you do. And the other thing that you do that I think is really cool is you do some local things like you in Coeur this beautiful town. There's um, summer theater. There's a, a winter event, a Christmas event that I I think maybe last year was your last year, which is kind of sad. But um, it's got to be kind of cool to be able to do that. What is, what's that like for you?
2: Well, for me, it was wonderful because I was the producer, the director, the creator I did, but I could have my family with me. So in a show, like one year, my sister was in it with me, my daughter, Molly, my, my granddaughter, Lola. We were all on stage for that month. We entertained, we did 15 shows. And I thought, wow, this is wonderful. And Johnny would come and, and Joey and all the others came to see us. But what a great gift to be able to do that, to put people in a show that you love and that are wonderful and work together.
0: No, I, absolutely. And it, it's just, it, it, it feels great. And it feels great doing a, a, a program like this and, and making a difference. Is this a, a different type of character for you ever to play, Ellen? Like where you're in this this phase of life? Well, first of all, I've never been
2: this old before. You know, I'm going to be 85 in October, so oh, we wow. you, But you know, your
0: energy oh, levels through the roof, well, are 85. <laughs> I,
2: what? Your how much? You what? Uh, it was it was fun to be able to uh, just relax into it and be there, be really in present time and enjoy. And it was indeed. I have no, I've not done. I, I've done some serious roles, but nothing like this. And and one of my sisters said, oh, Ellen, maybe you'll reoccur. I said, Annie, I die. I'm gone. I don't come back. Oh, I said, that's what it's about, the dying, the passing.
1: Mm -hmm. You know, you used the word hope earlier. And and, uh, when I watched the show, it is so hopeful. I mean, there's so much about hope. And I would imagine... When you get a script about a show that's all about dying or or you could look at it that way because they deal so much with death. And some shows, I think some uh, directors, some writers have been afraid to even broach the subject, even even go there because um, will people watch it? Do they want to watch death? Do they want to see this? But there's so much hope, like you said, uh, you I lo- that's just so true. What, what do you hope? people will get out of your episode.
2: Well, I, I think, ha. Huh. One of the things that occurred to me was, you know what? You think when you're dying, you, you'd be self-centered. Where am I going? What's going to happen to me? But no, this woman was caring about her, her grandson. She was caring about him and she needed to know on some level that was okay so she could pass. And that is sort of on there. There are things that hold people back from leaving. It could be unfinished business. It could be leaving someone they were concerned about. Um, Many things. They just don't want to leave the group. My dad, when we were in, I've got 11 of us were in the room and he was passing and we were laughing and joking and kidding. And the nurse said, you know, I don't, I don't, I think that maybe you should leave because. He doesn't want to leave you. And if he hears that laughter and lo and behold, seven of us left, I stayed. And within 10 minutes, he was gone. Mm-hmm. He wanted to stay for the park.
0: Wow. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing is that after you lose a loved one, that's very, very important. part of your life for a long period of your life. It's difficult. It doesn't happen. You don't, the grieving process takes a lot longer than people think. And then you're reminded by that person and your different things. So these are conversations where someone will watch the show and say, Oh my gosh, like talking to you right now reminds me of losing my father five years ago and mm-hmm. how I miss him. But it's that doesn't always come up where it's coming in my brain. But when we talk about death and dying, that's where I first start to think about. So I think it also, well, but then and then you start thinking about the good things too. So it's sometimes talking about death leads to some laughter and smiling, as you said.
2: Well, I think it should. It's it's a Marriott. It's a, it's a it's a lot of of uh, different things. And here's the thing: as you get older, too. I mean, I'm as I said, I'm the eighty-five. I'm losing friends. I'll go to pick up a phone and say, "Oh my God, they're gone. They're gone. They were gone." And this year, three or four friends. I have a lot of young friends who I keep in touch with all the time, also but they're depending on the age you are, So I think it's important to include young people in conversations about the inevitable. You're going to pass on to another existence.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, and this show does a good job of, of being for all ages, you know, it's something families can watch together. And I I think that's an important thing too. And, you know, it's interesting what happened with your dad and it's interesting your character um, that, that, People don't think about themselves like you would think and, and be worried about themselves, but more worried about the people they're leaving behind. I had that with my husband. He was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and and I would just start crying sometimes. You know, we laughed a lot, but I would start crying sometimes. And he would just hold me and say, don't cry for me. Don't cry for mm-hmm. me. You know, you're the one that has to stay here, and I'm like, "Yeah, buddy. You know, you don't have to pay another bill or get sick ever again. I'm like, good <laughs> for you.
2: <laughs> but, uh, but that's a good point that you made. Well, I think it's important, and you know, Betty White. I loved her. Are you afraid to die? Someone asked. You. She said, "Oh no, it's the last great adventure. Mm.
0: Especially when your sort of life that is. yeah, totally. I'm sorry. I was going to say that's exactly, uh, she lived the life she wanted to live. And that's Mm -hmm. the key thing, Ellen. That's when, whenever you, whenever your time, which is years from now, I can tell you your energy level that you'll know I've accomplished a tremendous life. And that's the thing why everyone should live with a purpose and, and driven in their lives for family, for success, to do the best things and be happy is that their lives are fulfilled.
2: I agree. I think it's very important to, at the time of your life, live it. Enjoy it. Don't worry about the past. You can't change it. And who knows what's going to happen tomorrow. But it's hard to stay in present time sometimes just to be and enjoy the now.
1: Yeah, I think that's so important. That's such a great point. And uh, you can get distracted so easily about what's going to happen tomorrow or what's going to happen next Mm -hmm. week next month, but to be in today, you know, to be rock solid in today and just be living what's going on today is so important.
2: That's, that's a huge thing. Thank you for bringing that up. No, you're welcome. And both of you are, are, are lovely. And you are what, tell me if you, you do the show together every day.
0: No, we do shows together, but I, I, I do a bunch of shows and she has her own television show as well, Kim. Right. Yeah. So mm-hmm. And,
2: and where are you? You're in Illinois. Where are you in Illinois?
0: Oh, I'm in Pittsburgh. I'm, and ahead. I'm in,
2: in Michigan. And, and Michigan. Where? Michigan? You're in Michigan. Who was in Illinois? Oh, maybe. okay. <laughs> Some, a lot of people. There's a lot of people in Illinois, actually. <laughs> okay. Pittsburgh. I went to Carnegie Mellon.
0: Oh, my gosh. And, you're the second person I've interviewed that was talking about Carnegie Mellon. Uh, I started my radio career, uh, started as a cable access station to now 150 plus stations, number six celebrity podcast in the world, according to Feedspot. But I started 15 years ago getting to do a pilot show at Carnegie Mellon, uh, starting out as education show. And I brought all these different people on and expanded it to where it is today. I'm not on Carnegie Mellon University anymore, but I didn't go there, but I ended up uh, doing WRCT. So uh, there goes our connection.
2: Yeah, there you go. And when I went there, it was um, a Carnegie Institute of Technology. The Carnegie Mellon came later.
0: Awesome. All right. So everyone is now, season two is available at Great American Pure Flix. Just check it out and check out Ellen's episode. And I appreciate it, Ellen. Best of luck. Love to chat with you again with another project. And thanks for coming on the show.
2: Thank you both. You're lovely. It was fun to talk to you. Thank you very
0: much. God bless you and happy new year. Happy New Year. God bless you, too. All right. That was a special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and the Love is Podcast, guys. Take care. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and Celebrity Interviews Live from the Grotto with Greg Hanna. Greg, what's going on, man? How are you? Hey, I'm doing great, Neil. As you can tell, I am live
3: on location
0: at the Massachusetts
3: Municipal Association Annual Meeting in Boston. I'm really excited, and I can't wait to talk to our guest. She's amazing, and I know everyone's going to love
0: her. Yes. So we have Shahina Wasim. Uh, from Superheat, The Spice World of Pepper People and a Guinness Book a World Records winner. Shahina, thanks for stopping by. I you're I've interviewed over 20,000 people, celebrities and everyone. I've never had a Guinness Book a world record winner.
4: Oh, thank you so much for having me on your show, Neil. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not a Guinness World record holder, but I am a League Fire world record holder. So pretty close.
0: <laughs> oh really. Okay, so but what's the difference?
4: So League of Fire is a, a world governing body that specializes in sort of recording events and, and uh, records purely involving chili stuff. So it'd be chili challenges, whether it's competitive chili eating contests or challenges, spicy hot challenges, that kind of thing. And I am there, I was actually their world uh, champion, chili eating champion until last year, where I had to let go of my belt because I couldn't get to New Zealand because of lack of funds. Uh, but other than that, I've achieved a lot of records through League of Fire. I have right. 105 Carolina Reapers under my belt.
3: <laughs> wow. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> I have to ask, you know, I, I read about how you got into this and that you love cooking and you love adding, you know, the complexity of the, of the pepper to your food and all of that. It was really amazing. I love your accent, by the way. Incredible. Oh, thank- we, don't ha- <laughs> we don't have that here in Boston. Uh, you know, <laughs> we all sound different. <laughs> Um, But what's the hottest, uh, like, heat-rated chili that you ever had to uh, contest with?
4: So, you know what, that's a question I get asked often, and it's really hard to say, because I will never really have a super hot outside of a competition environment or a challenge environment. I don't really enjoy just having them normally. Um, So uh, the only time I ever have them is... uh, Uh, When I'm in a competition and by the time you sort of get to the fifth or sixth round, all the chilies with the heat gets you. So the flavors start to work. But there is one that I remember really specifically because of the pain it caused me is a chocolate apocalypse that was grown by like a local UK grower, Sean Brown and it's not so officially rated. So you wouldn't really know whether it was hotter than the Carolina Reaper, which which was officially the hottest at that time. But it was one of those peppers that actually made me wanna like rethink. And I was thinking, am I going to quit today? Today is the Mm. day I'm going to quit. And this is like my 55th competition, you know? And I'm like, is this it? And that made me really question things. And probably the one that sticks in my mind a lot being the hottest I've ever tried.
0: And it's crazy you did it, right? Uh, You still kind of pinch yourself at times, right? Saying, why did I do something like this? But it's great. It's really built you a lot of notoriety and stuff. But it's a challenge, right, to be doing these competitions.
4: 100%. I started as a hobby. I got into it quite by accident. And and now it's become a passion of my life. You know, I, I sort of dedicate and devote a lot of time now uh, working with League of Fire and um, promoting other contestants, other chili eaters all around the world. We're working together now to build, bring this new experience with Firehub. It's a new app, uh, iOS and, um, um, you know, Android, just for chili eaters all around the world to register anything that they eat hot, not just peppers, whether it's a hot sauce or a, chip or anything like that so i'm trying to grow the sport of competitive chili eating all over the world and i'm, I'm so passionate about it and it's all through chili eating contests
3: wow that's, <laughs> that's something um so is there any way to, to prepare yourself for it i mean do they let you drink water or milk or i've found that dairy seems to cool off the heat better than water or beer um what, how do you prepare for it? Uh, what do you do afterwards? What What is the next 24 hours after a competition like? I have so many questions.
4: <laughs> no, I, I can totally understand. And it's quite funny when you watch the show, you get so many of these answers. And that's why I like this show, because to the masses, it's going to answer so many things that you've always questioned and and it does kind of delve deep into like all different sides of uh, the chili community this whole culture but the competitive side is really interesting but the way these competitions work you'll have uh, maybe 10 to 15 rounds of eating chilies from the mild to the hottest in the world and during that competition you cannot have a sip of water or milk if you go and have a milk you're out basically if you spit all your pepper out you're out they're really strict so you have to eat like a pepper all the way down to the stem show then the stem and then you can progress to the next uh, level but over the years i've learned through experience that you have to prep key is the prep before going into competition which is you know, eating something starchy, eating something fatty. So I'll always have like a cheeseburger and a milkshake before I go into a competition um, just to line your stomach. And I learned that the hard way because I've done competitions on an empty stomach in one and then paid the mm-hmm. price afterwards. I was like curled up on the floor begging for it all to stop. And it lasted like 12, 14 hours, these capsaicin oh. cramps. Uh, a friend of mine is a fellow chili, chili eater. She's gone through childbirth and she said to me, I would akin this to giving uh, you know, a birth, uh, labor pains, all that sort of stuff. And when you hear that, you think, oh, my God, I know. What I was feeling that day it was crazy. So I kind of learned that you definitely have to prepare before you go.
0: Into totally.
4: Position. And afterwards, immediately after, I do sort of drink chocolate milk and blocks of cheese just to numb the pain uh, because a lot of people would come up to me and say hi I want to give me a hug and congratulate I on <laughs> selfies with me so you have to look good and you can't and you can't just say to them no I'm gonna go and and die so you have yeah. to kind of just be there and be strong so that kind of helps a lot and yeah it's just funny really how it all works. <laughs>
3: Well, no, I follow up to that before, before you jump in, Neil. So, one of the things that you hear a lot, right, like in fitness or out in the natural world, they, they say that eating, you know, hot sauce or chilies or this or that helps boost the metabolism. The, the, do you find that to be uh, truthful or is there any validity to that in your experience? You
4: know, I, I find like these scientific studies that you always see, I think capsaicin is good for you. So every day, a bit of pepper in your food with moderation is good for you, it's good for your blood pressure, it's good for your heart, it's good for your circulation, it's good vitamins. And I find that definitely 100%. Yeah, it will boost your metabolism. It'll give you a bit of energy. A lot of people feel an endorphin rush after they have a super hot, they'll be buzzing. like You've just had an espresso shot or something like that. (laughs) So definitely helps.
0: (laughs) All right, so let's talk really quickly about the show. And Greg has a final question super hot the spicy world of pepper people it's available on hulu explain what we should expect from the show the series
4: okay so my god this is going to delve into the chili community like never before you guys are going to see the chili community from a really wholesome perspective and you're going to see sides of it that people you know didn't know existed so it's going to shine a kind of light to all different aspects and facets of the chili community from the pepper growers to the competitive chili eaters to the hot sauce makers to hot sauce collectors and it's really interesting and I think it's something that's never been done before this is a first of its kind documentary series and I'm really excited for the world to get to know our culture and learn about us Uh, it's going to be so entertaining I think you're going to be hooked from episode one. I hope so, Fantastic. anyway. <laughs> Fantastic. Go
0: ahead, Greg, with your final question you ask the celebrities.
3: Well, Shahina, this has been an absolute pleasure. You're amazing. Love this conversation.
0: So let me ask you this. Um,
3: Shahina, tell me, what do you feel in life is the most important thing you've ever learned? In life? Yes.
4: Okay. That's, that's a great question. I like it. So in life, I, I feel like um just actually like competitive chili side is such a big part of my life so um I finally like sort of as I was getting bigger and bigger in the competitive side of uh chili eating there were a few occasions where I got of sort of got shut down a bit people tried to stop me competing and things like that because they didn't like that I was winning all the time and stuff like that and it kind of really demoralized me and it wanted me to make uh you know wanted me to I almost made me feel like I wanted to quit, I didn't want to continue anymore because of that sort of negativity. And then, what I learned that lesson I learned from that was no, you know, you shouldn't bow down to these people, you shouldn't just give up on your dreams. My goal is something I've, I've set myself a goal of 100 wins, and I'm going to achieve it. So, I'm not going to let this minority of people bring me down or stop me from achieving my goal. So, my lesson in life that I learned was that be strong, be focused. And chase your dreams, and look at me now. You know, after all that sort of negativity and stuff, I'm going to be in a Hulu show, and, and, and people are going to learn about me. So that's where it's got me: that motivation, that dedication, and that lesson in life, really.
0: Love never, it. thank you. Never ever give up in your dream. That's all I'm going to say. And you, you might see things aren't going the right direction, but guess what? That's just a blip. You don't see the final. Yeah product and there you go and your final product or your first of your next level things is to go check out hulu on january 22nd will be available shahina i appreciate it thanks again for stopping by and again greg thank you
3: yeah you're welcome neil thank, thank you, you Shaheena. it was a real pleasure Best appreciate of it. Luck.
0: Guys. all right that was a special simulcast of the neil haley show and celebrity interviews live from the grotto greg Hanna, guys take care hi everyone and welcome to the special simulcast of the neil haley show and author's corner with our host frank fiore frank how are you We've been having some really interesting authors the first week, and we continue, right? And uh, I wanted to ask you, Frank, do you believe in the law of attraction and yeah. energy and things like that? I wanted to know, because our guest today and our next guest really see that in specific ways. What are your thoughts, Frank, before we introduce our guest?
5: Yeah, well, I do think about that. I mean, uh, attraction and trying to, uh, in love and romance and what have you, there's, there's always uh, that at that little piece that that, that you, you identify with. And I know, I mean, I look at people and I say, and right off the bat, which you shouldn't do, but there is, a, you can see that, hey, I could connect with that person or not. So yes, I do believe there's something to, to that. to, to that theory. You
0: think there's something to it and how much do you, but you're not really into that spirituality and I truly am. I go through my entire life. So our guest today is Rika Rivka Markell uh rivka as i always call you your middle name how are you thanks for stopping by we're going to talk about the mindful money cure and uh this is the problem rivka when we talk about specifically enough people understanding law of attraction energy vibration the universe people miss out in understanding it don't they
6: well i think everybody understands what they want to understand you know it's like um it, it's a real thing for many people. And I truly, just like you, believe in the law of attraction. That doesn't mean that I understand the same, that I understand it the same way that most people understand it. Because it is like some of them, for some of them, it's like woo-woo. And for other people, it's like, well, this is how I live my life.
0: Yeah, well, define woo-woo. And then I'm going to have Frank ask a question. What's woo-woo? Because I don't understand the woo-woo. Because I think it's, uh, I might be on the right track, but I want to hear what your definition of woo-woo is.
6: Okay. So woo-woo means that people think it is not a real thing, that it doesn't real, that's not a law. The law of attraction is not a law. It is not real. Like you can think about certain things all day long. It is not going to happen. You cannot attract Anything you want so a lot of people are in that state. let's say 99 percent of the people don't believe in the law of attraction, which is fine. But once you start to understand how that thing works, your life becomes pretty interesting.
0: Good Frank, for your first question about the, about her book or herself.
5: Well first of all, I'd like to have some examples if you give me an example of the, of the law of attraction and process.
6: Okay, so the law of attraction states that like attracts like. So it says that your thoughts create your reality. So whatever you have in your mind, that is exactly what's going to happen in your life. So if you are thinking, you are are creating 24-7. Your thoughts are creating your reality. And now you can choose. If you are having good thoughts, then you're going to have good things in your life happening. If you are thinking negative, Stuff. then your life is gonna be a little bit more challenging. And it is what um, Henry Ford said in in last century, says no matter what you believe, if you can do it, you probably will. And if you think you can't, you probably can't. So it's whatever you think is true, that is exactly what you're going to attract in your life.
5: Now, in your book, you talk about the five-step blueprint to harmonizing spiritual and material success. And what what are they? what are what are these what are the five steps?
6: Well, I think it's a long thing to go in there, but what I truly believe is that a lot of spiritual entrepreneurs, that they are very um, they, they're a little afraid to ask money for what they are doing. So let's say energy healers or uh, spiritual teachers, they feel like they cannot ask any money for what they're doing. So that's why they need some help here. They need to get over that. And they need to figure out first of all, is that true? Is that the reason? Like the first in the first step is acknowledging is this true for me? Am I blocked in my abundance, in my wealth, because I have a limited belief that I cannot um ask money for my services so then they have to like the first is acknowledging like what is it exactly that is holding me back and then there are releasing techniques and then there is like visualization and there's like certain steps um and they are a little bit different for everybody so there are exercises in the book that will guide people through it the way that they need it in that moment.
0: Interesting. You know, the thing I look at, you know, specifically enough, my limiting beliefs maybe four years ago, five years ago, I think when Rivka, you and I met, I was very my confidence level was not to the level it is today. That's for sure. I know that for a fact. And I think it's because of limiting beliefs and who I was surrounding myself with and people and different things and circumstances and situations. But if we don't think we're worth a certain amount of money if we don't think we're going to create certain things and are going to happen and they're always say, well, it might happen, or I don't know, you pretty much have already created it. I've told Paul this, who's off offline, my producer and business partner, when you bring those limiting the beliefs you're creating, we are all divine creators. Explain in this book why you've written this. And it sounds like you've written this for people who are coaches. Is that correct? They're spiritual healers, yeah. teachers, because 100%. they're the ones that are seeing that because they don't make money for their client, they don't want to charge kind of go, go into that. But let's go into my first question and then lead to that second.
6: Like a lot of spiritual coaches, they have like a limited belief. They have like a money story and their money story. they It comes from like when you are like in the spiritual world, then that means that you have your talents and your gifts, but from previous generations, whenever we
0: She froze for a second. Yeah. We were going great
6: were like in the um for religious reasons like there was like a blockage it it could not like that was like a no-no like when you were a priest or you were a nun or whatever you were in the spiritual world but you could not charge for that that was not that was not done or when there's other blockages like from people in previous lifetimes of course you have to believe that that's also one of the one of the blockages that we go back to previous lifetimes So what is that money story? What what are you carrying over from previous lifetimes? And there's also your ancestors. I, for myself, and that's maybe for Frank an example, because I'm speaking out of um, my own life. Like in my lineage, all the women, like my mother, my grandmother, her mother, they were all what I call full-time volunteers. So they were working for their community all day long, and they never got paid one penny. So that's my lineage. So I felt when I was starting to to help people, that yeah, I I was a full time volunteer. I was working really hard. I had a lot of people that asked me, "Can you please help me?" And I and I tried the best to best I could, and I was like, I cannot ask money for that. But it's and then I realized in my lineage, all the women they were full-time volunteers and we're going to change that. And I did. And I'm happy for my kids because now they come after me and they don't have to deal with that anymore. So once you can cut it out, it's for everybody good.
5: You, in your book, it's called Mindful Money Cure. Uh, yeah. in, you know, in 30 seconds, what is the mindful money cure? Can you expand on that?
6: Well, it, it, is a, it is a money cure. You're going to cure your money story. And you're going to do that mindfully. Like, it's a mindful money cure. It means, like, you don't, you're not going to become... Because you are a spiritual teacher and you're going to let go of your money blocks, you're not all of a sudden going to become, like, a, a shark who is going to overcharge and who is going to... Um, like go to the other side. You're going to do it in a mindful way. You're going to deal with your money story, and you're going to cure it.
0: Okay. Yeah, and and that's and that's the truth. We're looking at you. Look at particular things, uh, Frank. And our subconscious controls our whole life. It controls everything. And you can look at it in a lot of ways. The most successful athletes, the most successful entrepreneurs, the most successful people have great mindset that they believe they can do it. And that's a, a, a multiple thing. But also, we could believe we can do it, but in our subconscious is telling us something different. There's a lot more to the subconscious that other people call woo-woo, and I don't care. And I know it works. And, it, and trust me, it does. And if anyone wants to see, they're going to see my life change in tremendous ways in the next years because of it, because of the special secret, as they call the secret. But when you talk about specifically enough, if people go out and say, I can accomplish this, I know I can create this, I'm going to create this, they're the most successful people in the world. Bottom line, they had an idea, they created it and developed it. But if they had anyone else that's the naysayers around them saying, hey, I can't do this. I'm not going to be able to do this. I'll never do this. It will come into your mind and your subconscious, then to go into your conscious, and then you will have limiting beliefs that you won't be able to do it and you will never accomplish it. Correct. Right. That's it
6: that's in a nutshell and, <laughs> and, and there is also way more to it for sure because it's oh. not
0: like it's just it's, the beginning you need a coach not- like Rivka to be able to yeah. guide you especially if you're into this and you want to help people and help people through this but Frank any so have you ever been introduced to the law of attraction in a real way like you've gotten today first time <laughs> first time <laughs> first time uh, that's and- amazing
6: I usually don't. That's usually not my audience. The people that are not really into this. It's like where There's I. Step a lot
0: in, more than into it than yeah. you think, Rivka. Now, where but I go ahead. In,
6: where I step in is usually the people that are working with the law of attraction, and all of a sudden they walk into a wall and it doesn't work anymore. And they first they had really good results, and they started to work with it, and they changed their. Um, they changed their thinking, and, and they got rid of a lot of limited beliefs, and they changed their paradigm, and all of a sudden, it doesn't work anymore. And so they did the affirmations, everything. And that's where I come in, when it doesn't work anymore. Because that's where you have to start really digging deep and letting go of all the stories. And now we're talking about the money story, but it could be a health story, it could be a relationship story, it's wherever you are blocked, wherever you feel like you're walking into a wall, that is where you have to let go of certain things. And exactly what Neil says, our subconscious mind is 95% of the equation. So whatever you are programmed to do, and we get programmed, and there's a lot of there's a lot of science now that explains that, that we are programmed between zero and six years old. And so that's when the main Programming starts, and it's like the software in your computer. Once you are programmed, that is the life that is going to roll out for you. And that's why a lot of people say he's just like his father, or he's just like his grandfather, because you just um, you just unfold the life that was programmed in you. You want to change it? That's an active process. You need to do something to change
5: that. Hundred percent. Are you talking about the concept uh, which? I found fascinating and I applied to my life is that you write your, your life script early, that age group that you're talking about and you actually write that script and you, and you uh, can live it or you can ignore it, but you do write that script and that does guide you. And it has done uh, in my, uh, in my life. And uh, to me, I, I was going to, I was going to, and go into service, become an officer. I was going to go to college, get a degree. I was going to find a, a, a beautiful woman, a blonde, which I did. <laughs> I'm going to have a child, a son, at least a son. And then uh, I was going to do something very creative, which I'm doing now with my books and what have you. And that I will make, uh, I'll do something socially relevant. And I was very involved with the nonprofit organizations in, in the city and what have you. So, yeah, I did develop over those years. I did. I, f- I filled out that life script.
0: That's yeah. it. That's a life script. We are divine creators. Frank, you can create now. Uh, Paul, you can create now. So he's behind the the glass, and Rivka definitely can create. And I'm trying to, to create this legacy. So, best place we can find information on you, Rivka, is go where?
6: Well, definitely mindfulmanicure.com is the website for the book. And then you can also find me on rika or rifkamarkel.com. And then you see all the all the other books and 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 more information on what I do and what I stand for.
0: Fantastic. Thanks again. You're listening and watching the Neil Haley Show and also Authors Corner, guys. Take care. Hi everyone. Welcome to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and Authors Corner. And I'm excited to welcome the host of Authors Corner, Frank Fiore. Frank, how are you? This is a learning experience, right, with these different authors, the things we get to learn, right?
5: Oh, yeah. We, we go far afield. It's really interesting. If anybody listening to our podcast can get a little bit of everything and the stuff they would no, And this is your other
0: podcast, too. Yeah, we're listening and finding everything. This is just the Author's Corner podcast, as Frank has relaunched it with me, and then syndicated on The Neil Haley Show. And my guest today is Michael Starr, author of Journey Into Peace. Michael, how are you? And I uh, appreciate you coming by.
7: I'm doing great. And I really appreciate
0: the opportunity to be part of your uh, podcast here today. Absolutely. Now let's just jump in and then Frank will ask the next question. I wanted to talk about Michael, tell your background, because it's very interesting, your background and how you became an author after this. But this book really is what you've been working with your clients for years on in a lot of ways.
7: Yeah. Um, well, my background is, is I was born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, as I said earlier. And uh, I uh, went to the same school as Andy Warhol, so uh, at Carnegie Mellon, and I did have my 15 minutes of fame in 1972 and canoed from Pittsburgh down in New Orleans. Um, after that time, I was drafted, joined the Navy, became an officer in the, uh, in the submarine force and drove nuclear submarines around for a number of years and then left that, uh, was in uh, locomotive maintenance with several major railroads Uh, and have uh, since uh, opened up a personal coaching business. And um, I um, began the writing of my book, which actually took about 10 years. So, and while in business, I ran a $100 million a year production line. So I have some experience in the world of nuts and bolts and, you know, getting real results. Uh, I've climbed Kilimanjaro in Africa. I like exploring and doing things that the normal person doesn't do, whether it be hiking in the Alps and those type of things. But uh, probably my biggest, um, I guess, I don't know if you would call it accomplishment, maybe would be transformation, is realizing along the way between the Navy uh, and in the corporate world that there was a lot of suffering and there was a lot of unnecessary suffering. And for the last 10 years, it's been my mission to find some way that I can contribute to reduce suffering and increase peace of mind. And the book is called Journey into Peace, a language for peace, progress and healing. And through my experiences in business and in my home life with various things that I've had to uh, contend with, I I realized that there is a way to uh, bring more peace with the past, progress in the future and healing with the present. And the surprising result was that the everyday language we use has embedded with it really self-fulfilling prophecies that could lead us on a on a journey to success and a trajectory towards improvement, or can have us go round and round and accomplish nothing, or worst of all, have us walk off a precipice and, and cars cause greater harm. And I would say particularly what I've seen in the last decade is uh, there's just a tremendous amount of suffering and division in our country that is unnecessary and it's really being fanned on by tyrannical speech uh, weaponized language um, and that uh, this is my contribution as an antidote to begin the healing in our country uh, when we're at probably one of the worst periods that i've seen in my 73 years of uh, divisiveness and just the demonization of people who think differently than we do
5: well, don't, yep, you, don't you believe uh, that, uh, that that different people think differently? I mean, look at what's going on in this country. Look at what's going on in the world. It's almost like it's impossible to talk to, to someone that, uh, uh, that that's in opposition to you. They have a certain brain set that they can't comprehend your position. And I'm talking about both sides. I mean, is, what does why is what does language have to do with that? How do you break through to somebody in order to if you want to have peace, right? How do you break through to your opposition that doesn't want peace or does or thinks that you're the you're the cause of the uh, conflict and the situation?
7: Well, a really good question, and and I would say that it begins with um, really interacting with people one person at a time. I would hope that you um uh, frank is that your name yes uh-huh. frank that i could convince you that by improving your language you could be more effective in inter- interacting with other people it kind of boils down to let, let's talk about what our motivations are here are we looking for healing or are we looking for hurting are we looking to be right or are we looking to do the right things are we looking to
5: yeah there's a look,
7: uh, look good uh, or do good. And so the, you know it begins with you know kind of looking at that motivation, and I've kind of divided up language into three areas, wise firing language, useless language, and dangerous and tyrannical language. So we ourselves say we'll start with you, Frank. We begin with noticing the tyrannical language, noticing the danger dangerous language, and noticing the useless language, and to begin to communicate in a way that is more effective. And it begins with empathy. Uh, I have a term in the book, I have these states of being, uh, and one is called uh, EBCs in 3. It's empathy, boundaries, and compassion. And in order to be effective in working with people, we have to have some empathy for them, understand that given their DNA, their circumstances, their socioeconomic background, all the history they couldn't help becoming who they became. But I, you, you, you really give me a good segue into an example that has one been the most important example in writing this book. Uh, there was, there is, a black r musician by the name of Daryl Davis. He's produced several TED Talks. Re- he's uh, written several books, and um, he's played with... Uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, B.B. King. Um, and he experienced some pretty, not pretty, but severe racism as a young, young boy in uh, uh, the Eastern part of the United States. He decided, he had a question he was looking to answer. How could someone hate me who doesn't like me, who doesn't know me? How could someone hate me who doesn't know me? And he went on a quest to understand it. And in his quest, he befriended, and it was a long process the grand dragon leader of the KKK. He found a way to listen to KKK leaders, KKK memberships going to their meetings because he was respectful towards them. He was respectful in a manner of understanding, trying to understand why did they come to believe as they did? And as a result of his, I guess, respect, I guess as a result of his desire to avoid conflict and seek understanding, he talked, I think dozens of KKK members from, the, got them to disavow the Klan. If, if Daryl Davis could get a KKK member to disavow being a member of the Ku Klux Klan, there's a lot of opportunity for us. But it begins with empathy. We've got to have an understanding hey, there's a reason people think the way they do. I may not agree with it, I may not like it. And let me just begin with trying to understand and asking questions, you know, why do you feel this way? And and coming across in a respectful manner, I think that begins the pathway to, to opening up a dialogue. Um, people, there are what I call, and, and it's important to be aware of what empowering language is and what is not, there's a term I've I've coined called contra identities. We live in a time, and it's being promoted uh, that people have contra identities. Who am I? Who am I, Mike Starr? Okay, Mike Starr, I'm a father, I'm I'm a husband, I'm a canoeer, I'm a hiker, I'm a author. I, you know, that's who I see I am. And but people have become increasingly caught up in this contra-identity, who am I? I am someone better than you because you're stupid. I am someone wiser than you because you're you're not too smart. I am a moral person because you're immoral because you are a whatever, you are a racist or you are a libtard, whatever it may be. So we have this growing trend that's been promoted, um, uh, sadly, uh, tragically, that people are identifying themselves in contrast to someone else. And I'm positive because you're negative. And so I guess to answer your question, be aware of what wise empowering language is, study the book. There's a lot of good stuff in here. i got a chapter on um, what is effective listening. I've got a chapter in here on healthy relationships enhance um, and understanding and seeking to understand why people are the way they are and treating them in a uh, respectful, kind manner. Now, there'll be those who will kind of close the door before you go in, and I guess with those who just walk on by. But there are, th- I mean, Daryl Davis engaged Ku Klux Klan members, and he was effective in getting them to see another viewpoint. But again, began with him being respectful towards them, seeking to understand why are they the way they are you know, we may look at somebody and say, well, that's not logical. I can't believe that, you know, someone would think that way. But maybe the wiser approach is, I wonder why. What would cause them to look at things the way they did and have that empathy, form, and compassion? I think that begins to open a door up for effective communications and dialogue.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Definitely. You, uh, and I definitely uh, think that and in, in a lot of ways. So who are the people that you think are best to read your book? Like who, who are you, who, who the, are the ideal people that can learn from you?
7: Thanks for, for, for asking. I think the ideal people are. First of all, people who are looking for a better way. People are looking to reduce their suffering, people who are looking to heal. If you're a person that says, hey, I would like to help heal, I'm not interested in hurting other people. I'm looking to do the right thing and not being right. I'm look, looking at doing good rather than looking good. That is the beginning of it. I would say the ideal audiences to the large degree would be therapists, counselors, Ministers, leaders in the community—it's not an easy read. This is not a book you pick up and say, "I couldn't just—I couldn't put it down." It's not. It's—it really gets into the um, the whole background of language and, to some degree, how it was formed and what is language. It's a means to how we think and how we communicate with one another. But it does begin with someone who has an open mind and says, "You know, I have not reached the absolute truth about reality. I'm willing to look." at another perspective, and I have a a term in here called LEAR, the legitimate empowering alternate realities, and being open to the fact that my current reality, there may be a a wiser reality that's more empowering. So if you're looking to reduce your suffering, if you're looking to heal and help others, particularly leaders like therapists, religious leaders, counselors, parents, uh, there's a real great roadmap in here in terms of trajectories you could take to not only help others, but it begins with ourselves. I, in my business, I occasionally do counseling with couples and my experience is the greatest issue that stands in the way of effective relationships is people are not happy within themselves. Somebody in that relationship is not happy within themselves. This is a way of learning to understand how to have compassion for yourself, how to get past feeling bad about things in the past, and heal yourself. Because if you're distracted, if you are unhappy with things, if you're angry, it's like the old saying, if you're laying down, how can you pick anybody up? How can you lift somebody up? So uh, that's a long-winded answer to if you really have an open mind and one find yeah. a different way, you're frustrated about the state of the nation, the state of your your life and communications, your relationship with your significant other. It's, I think, would be a very helpful tool.
0: And Michael, it's important. The words we say really mean something in a way that's going to lead somebody to either being happy, sad, or angry. It's what we say in communication verbally, the way we say it in front of people, you know, via Zoom or on the phone. Uh, and also emailing, texting, that lang- that we have to understand that words really make are meaningful for people and they can hurt or help. Absolutely. And sometimes
7: it's the simplest words. Like I talk, I have a whole chapter in the poison of stupid and how stupid is such a tyrannical word. I begin the book in an introduction about my little um, rescue dog. Rippy, who's a chihuahua, and when we first got him, I turned to my wife, I says, honey, this is the most unfriendly dog we've ever had. And my wife said, just be patient. Well, patience is a useless word, and I explain in the book, why that doesn't take you anywhere. It's like forgiveness, those are not doable verbs. And the unfriendly word is a toxic word. And I thought about it and thought about it and says, hey, different perspective. Rippy, who is a rescue dog, is. Anxious, he's fearful, and maybe baked into his DNA is this fearfulness, etc. Well, when I see him as fearful, anxious, and, and scared, it, it empowers me to be kinder towards him. But when I use what I call binary thinking and say he's unfriendly, we've kind of shut the door. He's unfriendly. That's it. It's done and over with. But I see him as this scared, you know, anxious dog and it elicits compassion and kindness and reminds me to, you know, be slow with my movement and kind with my words. So, yeah, simple words like stupid, unfriendly, uh, forgiveness. Forgiveness is not a doable word. I have a whole chapter that says forget forgiveness, go for self-exorcism, and I speak to how you can do a self-exorcism for yourself, not a spiritual or a religious one, but a kind of just a regular one in understanding yourself and others, and you can purge yourself of anger, hostility, and anything that you harbor negatively towards someone or situation in the past in a matter of probably days, maybe weeks, as opposed to years of therapy. You know, someone once told me that one of the important aspects of therapy is the uh, the fortunes and the... All You know, it's like, (laughs) keep coming back and back, but no. Uh, So words are, uh, they're transformative. And there's a difference between happiness and sadness, success and failure, harmony and conflict. All
0: right, right, Frank, another one, our question for Michael before we let him go.
5: No, I think that uh, what he's saying really makes a lot of sense. And I've also heard from uh, other authors about that. It's best, it's best to, uh, seek clarification as 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 opposed to agreement then you get try and get an agreement then you get into the negative area if you're looking for clarification it gets into what uh um uh, what, what what Michael is saying about listening to other people's position and make them have them understand what they understand so that he can understand it so yes uh, I agree with a lot of things that uh that Michael is saying Michael Yo, best question to... yeah no, sorry
7: I, I agree with the clarification, and I would add to that understanding. Really seek to understand why is this person as they are? There's a reason. It may not be a good reason. And when you reach that understanding, then you have your empathy. And if you can, you know, they have that old talking stick method where the Indian chief sat around, held a stick, and they would not relinquish the stick, and they had the right to talk until they were heard by everybody. So. When you have understanding and you communicate, I understand you, I get you, I may not agree with you, that is where it transforms. That's where the door opens. And people are, they are desperate. They are so thirsty to be understood. Hear me, understand me. Here's what I have to say. And if you can convince them, I understand you. I get you. I understand you are the way that way. And I I can see why you feel that way. Then the door is open to communications. And that's where you know, the understanding and uh, compassion lead to building healthy and effective relationships. And you're in a position maybe to be a little bit more
0: influential. All right, Michael, best place people can find information on you, purchase your book and learn more about you. Where can they go?
7: Thank you. Well, Journey into Peace, a language for peace, progress, and healing. Just uh, look on Amazon, Journey into Peace, Michael M. Star, And um make a good gift to someone who's doing a little suffering themselves also all
0: right thanks again michael appreciate it all right that's special the neil haley show and author's corner guys take care